Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Well, uh, James Crone, a gentleman, uh, his picture will be up on the screen. He grew up in a rough Seattle neighborhood in the 70s and 80s. And although his father lived about 10 blocks away from him, he was not in his life. He and his sister were raised solely by their mom, a nurse who worked tirelessly to provide for both of them. Now, the components of his story aren't unique. He recalls that none of his friends actually had more than one parent in their home. Of his early childhood and teenage years, he notes, racial disparities surfaced early on. In my preteens, I learned how differently teachers disciplined white and black kids. They singled us out more. Yet I never crusaded against racial injustice. It just seemed normal for our community. The police hassled us regularly for just hanging out at a bus stop or a street corner. Sometimes three or four squad cars pulled up with officers jumping out, yelling and cursing to search our pockets for no good reason. Crone recalls that up until high school, he actually rarely got in trouble. He had really good grades, and it wasn't until he eventually started realizing his, um, what he later reflects on saying that he really didn't have a chance um, with the life that he was given, the cards that he was dealt. He got into gang culture, drugs, and partying as gangs from California migrated up to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so did their drugs and their violence. And so because of that, James got involved. He started selling drugs, earning a decent living doing so. He notes, I bought gold jewelry, expensive gear, gaudy cars, and I enjoyed clubbing and buying rounds of drinks. I was forever seeking recognition and thirsty for something that never satisfied. Money slipped through my fingers like melting ice in a scalding heat wave. So random police incidents added fuel to my resentment of authorities while driving my Caucasian girlfriend on a dinner date. A squad car flashing emergency lights stopped us. Officers ordered us from the car and forced us down on our hands and knees, frisking us. I was utterly embarrassed for her who was wearing a nice dress. They found nothing illegal and let us go. James believed in God his whole life. He grew up going to church every now and then with his grandma. Looking back, he sees God's hand was evident in his life. He, with his grandma, and then he also had other random people coming through his life from time to time. He, he mentioned specifically an officer who interacted with him, challenging him, quote, to do something positive with his life. But he kept running around with the same crowd. On multiple occasions, he almost lost his life to gun violence, uh, many times in drive-by shootings or coming towards his car or out of his car. Um, this kind of climaxed with uh, one of his girlfriends in the car getting shot in the head and through her mouth and barely missing him. 
but he walked away physically untouched. Now, though he went to earn his GED and acquire a roofing job, a pretty steady roofing job, a decent living, his outlook on life remained the same into right around my age, his young 30s. And he wandered in and out of jail for misdemeanors and petty assaults. But when James turned 33, he was arrested for getting into a physical altercation with his girlfriend at the time. A neighbor called the police, and they found an extensive amount of stuff in his apartment, quite a bit of drugs because he was dealing, and an Uzi, uh, which is a pretty intense semi-automatic weapon. As a result, he received a five-year prison sentence, but while out on bail, he reluctantly joined his sister at a church in the Seattle area for a church service. It was there that he had a life-changing experience while listening to the pastor's sermon. And in that morning, he recalls that with tears, he ran to the altar and he decided to follow Jesus that day. Now, Megan Hill, a different story, a different person entirely, has no memory when she became a Christian. She was raised in Connecticut, by what she calls godly Presbyterian parents. And as far back as she can recall, Jesus was always in her life. Church was always a reality. She believed in Jesus. She recalls praying before meals, memorizing catechisms and scriptures, and in children's church, enjoying singing from the hymnal. She attended a private Christian school growing up, and in fifth grade she recalls they would often in chapel bring in people on a weekly basis to tell their testimony, and each of these testimonies seems so what she calls extravagant or even, I think she uses the word dramatic, coming out of drug addiction or atheism and so on, and, and while she appreciated and, and praised God in light of the work that he did, hearing these stories caused her to doubt her own salvation. She writes, my before and after conversion pictures in parentheses, I, assuming I could even pinpoint a particular moment, didn't look that different. With no outward markers of coming to Christ, I questioned whether I had at all. Perhaps I was floating on other people's convictions, happily living in a Christian environment without actually being a Christian. If I didn't have a specific moment of repentance, maybe rep my repenting didn't count. I became convinced that my boring testimony was inferior. The topic before us this morning is salvation, and we're asking what is salvation. And although their stories may seem quite different, both Megan and James were in need of salvation. On the surface level, and circumstantially, it may seem one might need more of salvation than another. But we'll dig into that. But what is salvation? How does someone get, quote-unquote, saved? What happens when someone gets saved? How can we know we're saved? What do we need to do, or, or what do we need to be saved from? These are common questions that can arise when salvation comes up. Perhaps someone's even asked you, if you die today, do you know where you'll go? Like, usually got asked, asked that a lot on particularly on college campuses, people doing witnessing. Or perhaps someone shared a gospel with you that, you know, Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven. And what do you think? Do you accept it or not? Uh, it's just kind of that, like, quick delivery. And then all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart. 
that if you raise a hand, walk down a pr an aisle, pray a prayer, you're good. You have eternal life. As we look at this morning's topic of salvation, looking at Ephesians, we're going to briefly walk through the, what the scriptures say about it. And it's my goal, it's my hope, it's my prayer that for all of us, we, in particular, a lot of us who maybe have been, quote unquote, saved or in Christ for many years or even decades, that we would walk away with a grander picture of what salvation is. That it's far more expansive than what we've learned, far more extensive than what we've grasped, and yet far more personal than we felt and far more intimate than we've yet to experience. N.T. Wright sums up salvation this way, that the work of salvation in its full sense is one, about whole human beings, not merely souls, two, about the present, not simply the future, and three, about what God does through us, not merely what God does in and for us. It's all of it. It's not one or the other. But for a lot of us, perhaps we've heard, or I recall my own understanding and perceptions of gospel messages I received, it was the latter. That was that Jesus died for my soul, that Jesus died for some future thing that I would get that Jesus died to change me, but not really anything else to do anything in and through me. So we're going to look at four components. There's a lot of results of salvation, a lot of effects of salvation in our lives and in the world, but we're going to look at four particular things, specific results of salvation. Our new place, our new person, our new people, our new purpose. Let's look at our new place. Starting in Ephesians 1, looking at verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Let's stop right there. Our new place, our new place before God, or, or position before God, we are no longer distanced, we are no longer exiled or excommunicated from the garden, if you will. We're no longer cast out or even enemies as Paul utilizes sometimes in some of his writings. No, what does Paul say here? We're now daughters and sons of God. We are recipients of God's grace. We are blessed in Christ with literally, I don't even know what this means, but with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Whoa. That's so loaded. That's so grand. And I think, I anticipate that the rest of eternity will be tapping into that. Enjoying that, enjoying that with God, namely being and experiencing Him. Now jump down to verse 8, the last part. It says, with all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure that He set forth in Christ 
as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hopes on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news there, and had believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance. We have a new place before God. That's why in Galatians 4, Paul writes in verse 6, And because you are children of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This word Abba, we don't really use it, but it's a very intimate term from a child to their parents. That We are relating to our God in that manner. That no longer is it simply this royalty and servant, but no, we are children of God. And he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, and also an heir through God. We are heirs now. What the heck does that mean? That's huge. We're heirs. Just kind of an expansive thing. Why does this matter? You have a place. If you're in Christ, you now have a place you don't have to earn it. You don't have to worry about losing it. You belong. And in a world where people are seeking for belonging, for a place, for purpose, for community, experiencing isolation, loneliness, identity crisis, this is good news. This is good news. You have a new place. Let's, keep, let's look on to the next one, our new person. Back in Ephesians 1, verse 7, Paul gives us some insight into who we were before he gets into who we now are, our new person, our new identity. In verse 7, he writes, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. Let's jump down. Well, what's Paul referring to? Let's, let, he clarifies in the next chapter. Go down to chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is saying, you were, and just so you know, right here, it's you all. It's not just like you individually. It's like you all. This is a broader term that doesn't translate for us in English that well. But he's speaking to all who are in Christ here. He says, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. So before we ask who are we now, our new person, our new identity, who were we? Paul just kind of threw a lot out there. He says, we were dead. We were going with the flow of selfish living, self-indulgence. We were disobedient, hedonists, children of wrath as a consequence of that. And that wrath literally is we are seeking pleasure, goodness, in anything and everything aside from God. 
That truly is the wrath, where we are thirsty and thirsty, and we are drinking water that will never satisfy us. Have you felt that before? Man, you think of right now in a human day when you're doing yard work or something like that or on a bike ride and you're just like, I need water. And man, I, I can't make it much more. That is the plight. That is what Paul is describing here before who we were. But now he goes on in verse 4. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Two key words here. Mercy, grace. We kind of throw these around. They mean different things. They mean similar things, but they do matter. The distinction matters. Mercy uh, is not getting something we do deserve. So, a.k.a. we deserve to reap what we sow. We, we seek joy and satisfaction and meaning and identity in anything and everything aside from God, and God should, as Romans 1 points out, hand us over to that. Let us get what we want. We deserve that. But he is merciful when he doesn't leave us in that. He withholds that from us. We deserve the consequences of our actions. And then grace means getting something we don't deserve. Namely, salvation, right. Jesus, new life, resurrected life. So mercy, not getting what we do deserve. Grace means getting something we don't deserve. Let's keep going. Verse 6, he says, And he raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So who are we now? Who is this new person that we are? We're no longer dead. We're no longer stuck. No, we're actually made alive. We've been raised in newness of life. And we've been seated with him in the heavenly places. Which again, some of this language is just like, what does that actually mean? We have been seated, past tense. We're already seated in the heavenly places. Why? Why are we made a new person? Because did we do something? No, he says in verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Why have we been given this new identity, this new personhood, this restored humanity? Why are we being recreated in God's image? One, it says so he can show the riches of his grace in kindness towards us. That's a nice way of saying we are so sinful and so other than God's character that like in God extending grace to us, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, wow, like that's a lot of grace. That's rich grace. That's literally what Paul is saying here. So he can show the riches of his grace, how depth or how deep it is that he extends it towards us. How much he overcame the gap to extend his love towards us. There's nothing we could do to change this on our own. Timothy Keller writes, God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to the salvation offered as a free gift. 
In other words, religion tells you, I've got to obey and then I'll be accepted. I've got to do this, I've got to live or comply and live a certain way, and then I have my place and my new person in God. And often I have to become a new person before I can have my place. No, you have your place and God makes you into a new person. The gospel is, I'm accepted already, despite who I am and who I've been and who I will still kind of be throughout my days. Therefore, I go and live, follow, change, grow. It's by grace or a gift that we've been saved through this faith. And sometimes we can believe the lie that we just need to have more faith, right? If life's not going well, if something's happening, we just need to believe a little bit more, or faith isn't that strong, my faith's really weak right now, we can kind of throw these things around. I need to trust God more. And while those can be, there can be some truth to that extent, there is a subtle lie in there that we can, we need to be cautious towards believing. Keller writes again, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Meaning I can believe that some building that I put together, I can believe with all my heart it's gonna be, it's gonna stand, but if you know me, <laughs> You don't want to trust a building that I built, but any of the Yoders or some of these other people in here who build something, I may doubt their work because I doubt everyone and have doubt issues, trust issues. But guess what? My, my lack of trust doesn't change that their work is more secure than me trusting myself, my pride, and be like, no, I'm going to trust what I do. No, my work is not worth it. The, what matters is not the strength of my faith. What matters is the object of our faith, who we are placing our faith in. So whether your faith is on 1% battery charge, or it's like that early iPhone days where your battery's lasting for a few days, and you're like, wow, this is great, I never have to charge my phone. And that's like your faith. Great. Doesn't really change your place before God or your person in God. What matters is who that faith is in. Paul concludes this thought right here in verse 9. He said, this is not a result, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. As we're back to the passage that Aaron read this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 16, Paul wrote, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Meaning, our identity, once we are in Christ, our, per, our, the, our very being, our person, is different when we are in Christ. All other earthly identities fall in submission to our main identity in Jesus. So for me, before Christ, you know, I was a son of Miguel and Patricia. I was a student, I was an employee of Starbucks Coffee Company. I was a neighbor, all these different things. But guess what? When I become a Christian, when I become a follower of Jesus, my identity primarily is follower of Jesus. And then everything else falls in submission. And when these inhibit this, or pull me away from this, these down here need to be reconsidered or reassessed 
Where are my priorities? Are they pulling away from who I really am now? But we, we no longer regard people on that human point of view, the way that the world views each other. Those, those identities matter, different ways that we, we are social beings and, and identify ourselves in certain groups and communities. They can have a place, but they are not gospel. They are not the main foundational piece to who we are if we are in Christ. He goes on in verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled to a, us to himself through Christ. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we've been given, that we are new people? Well, I don't know about you, but my life, apart from Jesus, um, was not good. I thought it was, but it was a striving, it was a chasing after the wind, never satisfied, never whole, never complete. But this, why does this matter? You have been given newness of life. You are a new person, a new creation. God has and is recreating you in his image. But notice something about the excerpts of Ephesians that we read. Keep going now. We transition into our new people. Who is Paul writing to here? I alluded to it earlier. Who is his audience? Because we can read this in English, and it seems like Paul is talking directly to us. Yes, they're Jesus followers, but there's one key component to notice that Paul is writing to the entire group, the, the corporate gathering. In the verses we read, I think I read like 15 verses, there's about at least, from the English side, I can see at least 40 pronouns or terms that are referring to us as a collective group. This is often how Paul frames the gospel, not on an individual basis, but collectively, that God is purchasing and redeeming a people for himself. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul writes, so if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us through him, to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives, since God is making his appeal through us. And it's not just through us individually. That, again, that is a collective thing. That's why Jesus in the gospel says, they will know, they will believe that you are my disciples by the way you love one another, by the way you treat one another. Well, how do I love you if we're not together? How do we love each other if we are not in community? We were purchased not to just be a person in Jesus, but a people in Jesus as well. We are the people of God. Regarding this new community that we're a part of, Stanley Haberbos writes, Christian salvation consists in works. To be saved is to be made holy. To be saved requires our being made part of a people separated from the world, 
so that we can be united in spite of, or perhaps better because of, the world's fragmentation and divisions. We are set apart. We are part of a new community, a new city, a city on a hill, a new eternal global nation. We are a part of the church. Why does this matter? Well, oftentimes, when we come to faith in Jesus, when we deny ourselves and take up our cross to choose to follow Jesus in our lives, the life that we're giving up can be the community that we've been a part of. Sometimes for the rest of our lives and sometimes momentarily. I know for me, when I came to faith, uh, I had a season where I wasn't so close to the friend group that I was a part of because I wasn't just able strong enough, whatever you may call it, able to interact as well. And I was kind of outcasted a little too. But later on, you kind of had to build trust. It took time. And when, when I began following Jesus, my people changed. For James Crone, in the story we heard earlier, his people changed. The Apostle Paul's people changed when he came to faith. We see this over and over again. In Luke's account of Jesus' life, he records this time when Jesus is growing in popularity and there's crowds following him. They're literally traveling with him on the road, on his road travel circuit. And just as the movement is gaining momentum, Jesus does his thing where he drops a little, like, bomb that might deter some people. And he says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, what does Jesus mean here? Is he actually calling us, this seems contradictory, to honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself? What does this mean? Essentially, Jesus is telling these people that following him may very well imply the necessity to forsake any and even everything that we have identified with or placed our purpose and hope in, that we've invested in, that we've built, that we've worked towards, it could mean that. It could. It may not, but it could. Jesus is saying that the cost of following him could mean giving up everything, including their very people. But the good news is, you've been given a new people. We're not alone. We've been made into the family of faith. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. We have each, we have each other because we have Jesus. So, salvation gives us a new place before God. It transforms us into a new person. And it gathers us into a new people. Lastly, salvation gives us new purpose. And that's where the Second Corinthians passage comes in. In 5 verse 20, Paul writes, So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. Sometimes we can get this perception that we need to bring people to either our pastor or stronger Christians, whatever that means, or elders or teachers, whatever. Like, I just need to get my friend to meet that more spiritual authority in my life, and they'll save them. God will work through them. No, no, no. It's saying we are all 
ambassadors for Christ. I'm no better than anyone in this room. If anything, the scriptures actually tell us that my role is mainly to equip you to then go and do the work. That's what Ephesians 4 talks about. But no, we are all representatives of Jesus. And what does an ambassador do in an embassy, right? They're, they're, they're in a foreign land. They're in a place that is not their home. They only have a little circle of safety that they can reside in if it came to. It's namely their people. And, and same here. That's what we talked about, that Sundays, this time together, and in community together is a place of safety and building up and feeding and refueling. But then we're going out into the foreign land. We're going out into our neighborhoods and places of work and places of school and so on. That's why in Ephesians 2.10, Paul ended our passage saying, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. I like that, the way it phrased that. Some just say good works that we do, but I like that, to be our very way of life. Why does this matter? Well, you're in a new place or position before God. You're a new person in Jesus. You're a new people. You've been given this new identity, and you're a valuable part of the people. If you doubt that, I don't have time to get there, but if you doubt that you're a valuable part of this people or any local church, read 1 Corinthians 12, because you are. If you don't feel that, that's a different thing. But, but man, the scriptures tell us very much so that you are a valuable member of this community. And if you doubt your value before God, look at the cross and see your worth to him. Now, because of these things, you have this new purpose. You've been shown and have been given a new way to be human. We say new because for us it's new, but it is restoring us back. He is recreating us. This is Eden-like language where God is restoring us back, recreating us in his image that he made Adam and Eve in. Before I get into Q&R, what are some implications here for us? Uh, I, I just wrote two. One, let's not take grace for granted. A gal named Donna Barber, in her book, Bread for Resistance, 40 Devotions for Justice People, she wrote, though conversion may be pinpointed to a moment, salvation is a process that continues over a lifetime. I'm still being saved from old ways of thinking and behaving, and I'm coming to new understandings, to new life. Meaning the two stories we heard, some of us have pretty extravagant or dramatic, whatever that term may be, or it seems more glamorous testimony, whatever adjective you want to utilize there. And perhaps you're more like Morgan, who I grew up in the church, or I don't have a, a particular moment where it was like I came to faith, or I, I, I was a decent overall on the outward kid. Yes, inside I recognize I need Jesus, my, my sin, all that type of stuff, but I didn't rebel that much. One, I'd caution us on that because I think the gospel stories often show us that it's those very people that actually might be further, have a harder time in understanding, coming to grips with their distance from God. 
But two, know that God's salvation works differently for many people. I, I, I used to, I have quite a few people that I knew early on that had like a date for when they got saved. I don't have that. Uh, and some churches didn't like that, or Christians don't like that when I say, I don't actually have a date. I have like a season when I like started following Jesus, um, but I don't have like an aha moment. Some of us might, and we see that in the Gospels sometimes, but we also see seasons, life, like years. Think of the Gospels. The Gospels are literally three and a half years of 12 of Jesus' followers spending time with them, and they are growing in their understanding, their faith in and followership of Jesus. Similarly, Tim Keller writes, all change comes from deepening your understanding of salvation of Christ and living out the changes that understanding creates in your heart. To truly change isn't just to be a better person, it's actually deepening our understanding that we can't change on our own, nor do we need to change to come before God. No, it's coming to grips with that, accepting that reality that there's nothing we can do, and in that, God still loves you, still adopts you, still brings you into his family. And the other implication I have is don't shrink the gospel. See the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus' coming kingdom. And while it's true that Jesus died to save us from our sins and that we can go to heaven this can be, if that's all we communicate, far too simplistic. And sometimes I think not the best portrayal of our God. If you were to ask me, hey, what's your wife like? I'm like, yeah, she's, she's cool. She married me. She's, and she gave me the rest of her life, and she's pretty and nice. And then if that was it, it's like, no, no, no. The story is far grander. It's huge. It's not just John 3.16. There's a lot more about the story of God, the gospel of God, and there's a lot more results. We just talked about four here, but yes, one is the new place before God and that we are new people, but man, there's so much more. We, we, have, new per, uh, we have new purpose. That's something that tends to be lacking in our gospel presentation, that it's not just this future get-out-of-jail-free card. It is this new way to be human now, this fulfilling of everything, this filling in of color into our dull black and white lives that we can reside in, that we can numb ourselves through for 40, 60, 80 years, and then drop. No, this breathes air into the lungs of our lives and into the lungs of communities when we paint our gospel message as much bigger, much grander than this. Just the other day, a coworker at Chipotle um, was sharing why they went to church. They, it's funny, as I'm building trust with them, they're starting to open up about some of the things they do. And, and they'll throw out this little, like, I go to church, like as if I'm like, oh, okay, now, now we can be cool. I don't know. I don't know what this is. But you can just tell the, the, the lack of trust that people in the community have towards Jesus followers. And, and even more so, they call me a priest or a minister. It's funny. I'm like, I'm not a priest. Um, but... Uh, like, how do you have a kid? Uh, anyways, so, but in that, you could just hear the heart, the mentality behind it, what church is about. I asked, oh, why do, you, why do you go to church? I tried to uncover, get to the heart of why, the motivation, what draws them to church, why they 
spend that time? Why they don't sleep in on Sundays? And they said, I don't know if there's an afterlife, but if there is, I don't want to go to hell. And I think that's an example of how we've cheapened the gospel. While that is true, that we don't want to go to hell, we don't want to be separated from God, man, if that's all our message is, to not get punishment, man, we're, sh- we're selling God's gospel short. We're selling what salvation is far short. We're painting this picture of what God did on those old giant box deep, perhaps some of us have them, TVs, four by three, black and white, and you got to move the bunny ears, and it's staticky, and we're like all gathered around this to see, and it's not very clear, versus like this grand UHD TV that's just super clear 3D, and you're like, oh my gosh, this looks better than like human reality. How does this look so perfect? That's the difference there when we paint the gospel that way. And I think, I mean, it gave me the opportunity to talk with her a bit about it. But we use this language and we sell the gospel a little short. It's much more than a 30-second or even Romans Road gospel presentation. It usually, you know, there's a Wheaton scholar that he's since passed, but um, he was asked, you know, how how would you share the gospel? And he's like, well, I need at least an hour. Um, And, like, we kind of have this thing of, like, let's gear up a two-minute message and go out and save people. And it's like, man, God's been telling his story for thousands of years, and then it took this many books. Let's not sell the story short. Let's not sell God's work short. It can be simple, but let's not oversimplify it. There's much more, and there's so much more gifts that that have been lavished upon us in the heavenly places because of God's grace. What a wrap up. When James returned to jail, the next few months after his conversion, he devoured the scriptures for a couple months. He was a changed man. He went on to accept a plea deal that so much moved the members of the courthouse to tears because of the radical life change they had seen and heard even in his tone and his willingness to own his sin. James went on to to a theology school in Seattle, completing a doctor of theology degree. He continued further in education into another Bible college across the sound. um, Sorry, the Puget Sound. um, And while working for Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, this great organization that works to, to serve homeless people in the greater Seattle area, the Spirit led him to plant Risen Church in South Seattle a neighborhood filled with what he says is the same gang violence and drug use that, he, that nearly cut his life short. But when she was a teenager, Megan approached her church elders to seek membership. This involved sharing one's testimony and elders affirming that one understands the decision that they are making. And she claims that while her testimony was boring, quote, it was welcomed and validated. For Megan, it wasn't until her late 20s that she really became confident in God's work in her life and others like her. Perhaps some of us are like that. We're talking almost three decades regularly in church and didn't accept the work that God had done, had been doing in her life. She wrote, it wasn't until I became a parent at 27 that I began to see 
that in all testimonies, it's not the outward circumstances that are amazing, it's the grace. We don't sing amazing testimony, how sweet the sound. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Megan concludes her story, there's no dull salvation. There's no dull salvation. The Son of God took on flesh to suffer and die, purchasing a people for his glory. She writes, as Gloria, well, she quotes this gal named Gloria Furman, who said, the idea that anyone's testimony of blood-bought salvation could be, could be uninteresting or unspectacular is a defamation of the work of Christ. Yeah, it's literally us being like, God's like, yeah, I saved that person who is generally a, a socially acceptable person in your community, and we're just like, that's it? Show me something more. Like, wow. She concludes, for myself, I cannot point to a specific day of spiritual awakening. I can point only to my Lord who says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. She said, by Jesus I come every day in need of grace, and I find myself not cast out. And similarly, James concludes his story, despite the failures and heartaches of my past, I'm a new creature in Christ. The old ways are gone. Without his mercy, I would probably be dead today. Another sad statistic in the litany of inner city tragedy. Today, I have the privilege of encouraging young black men who feel worthless to choose the worth they have in Christ. I considered myself worthless once, but now I'm serving the living God, and in him, I am the man God destined me to be. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship, or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.